Today we would thank you for the gracious heart that allows us to come to you with life's challenges, with opportunities, with questions, with doubts, and to know that you're there for us, will not reject us. Thank you for a love unlike what we experience on this earth so often. And Father, I would pray that this day, that as we come to you, and as you draw us to yourself, that you would grant us, through your favor and through your grace, the ability to see things from your perspective. We live in a world that does not see you. We live in a country that ignores you most of the time. And we thank you that you're the God who comes to do cataract surgery over our spiritual eyes that we might see the way you designed us to see. And in seeing you, and in seeing how you designed this world in our lives and our purpose, we begin to move into a whole new threshold of opportunity, of possibility, and of effectiveness for life. So thank you for each one here this morning. Pray you'd speak to us. And Father, as you speak, give us hearts through the Holy Spirit to respond to the truth and to the favor and grace that you have for each one of us. I pray it in Christ's name and all God's people said. Well, good morning. Okay, we're going to do a little drill here. How many different ways can we say good morning or how are you? Different languages. How do you say, uh, for example, uh, good morning in, in Portuguese? Where's, huh? Bom dia, right? If you're from the north, Edson, where are you? Bom dia, right? Okay. How else? Give me some other good mornings or good days. Hmm? Good morning. Buenos dias. Huh? Okay. That's Finnish. Yadaloodle. Any Swedes here? Okay, we had some Russian in the first service. Jim Lildrigan was here. And Chinese? Ni hao. There we go. So anyhow, good morning. Welcome. From Uganda. Wonderful. And Mulibanji from, uh, from uh, Malawi. Well, anyhow, we're glad you're here this morning. And now I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> but we had fun, didn't we? Okay. Well, actually, what I was going to say is we are beginning a new series, and uh, Laura mentioned that to you. And our encouragement is you take a look at this series, New Beginnings, give it to someone, invite them. And uh, I think that uh, God will grab some folks by the lapels and say, hey, you know what? Uh, there's more to him than you could ever imagine, and it'll be good. And uh, I would just say today as well that uh, this, this morning's message has been inspired by Bill Berry. He didn't know that. We were talking in the fall about a series in the spring, and uh, he was talking about, you know, it would be good for us to, to, to talk about, you know, having a second chance, having a starting over, and therefore the series, New Beginnings, uh, not that that's novel, but um, so this morning we're going to take a look at what it means to have a second chance. Anybody here need one? Beside me, Yeah. In fact, if your hand did not go up, and I understand that if you're, if you're a Presbyterian, it'll go this high. If you're charismatic, it's like this. If you're a Baptist, you'll get one up. But anyhow, if you didn't put anything up, either you misunderstood the question or we misunderstand how much we need them every day of our lives. Every day of our lives, we need God's second and third and beyond chances, do we not? 
And um, uh, you also may have noticed that the title to today's message is, Why is Security Only Grace-Based? We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. And um, the, the world has many, many funny ideas of security. But there's one nation that leads them all with an understanding of false security. Do you know what nation that might happen to be? The one we're living in. There is more false security in this country than all the other nations combined. You see, most of the world understands they're in desperate need. America doesn't. We mess up our lives, our families, our businesses, all kinds of things, and we still think we, we, we've got the right idea of security. So today we're going to take a little bit of a look at that. And the way we're going to do it is that uh, when Bill talked about somebody who, who had a second chance, I was thinking through Scripture, and uh, one name just jumped out at me. I've always called him the baddest boy in the Bible. And obviously there's Satan who's even badder. But uh, the baddest boy in the Bible recorded that we know of could well be the person I'm going to talk about this morning. And you obviously know where that passage is found. You were reading it this morning, your devotions, right? So turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. How many were in your devotions there this morning? Yeah, it might as well be second. By the way, folks, that was a joke, okay? For, you know, it was, it was, 2 Chronicles is right next to Second Hesitations. Um, so turn there, 2, Hesita 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And uh, we're going to discover the story of a guy named Manasseh. Anybody been to Manasseh, the battle site of the Civil War? It was named after him, and uh, probably appropriately so, because most battle sites are brutal, and we're going to see the life of a brutal man this morning. Now, first thing you, you get when you read verse 1, it says he was 12 years old when he became the king. Okay, how many would like to have a 12-year-old ruler over them? Now, that happened in those days. When the king died, the son took over, the one who was heir apparent. And uh, actually, this guy's grandson turned out to be one of the greatest kings, Josiah, in all of Israel's history. And he was 13 when he took over. So it, it can happen in, in the positive direction as well. But anyhow, scary thing. He says he was 12 years old. And then verse 2, what he did, he said he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, following the detestable practices of the pagan nations the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. So that prepares you. The thing this guy does is the very reason God sent his people to drive the Canaanites out of the land. And we're going to see in a moment because their practices were so brutal and so perverse. And yet we're going to see in a moment this guy does it. So if you read through, you'll see words like it says, first thing he did is he rebuilt the pagan shrines his father had torn down. And then he said, he also bowed before the powers of heavens and worshiped them. That's not God. It says, verse 4, he built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord, where the Lord said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. And uh, then it says, verse 6, he also sacrificed his own sons in the valley of Hinnom. That means he offered infant sacrifices. He burned his sons to death on altars to pagan gods. Okay? On top of that, it says in verse 6, he also... Uh, he practiced sorcery, divination, witchcraft, consulted with mediums and psychics. That is, he was in the occult. He was in open Satan worship. He did much that was evil in the Lord's sight, arousing his anger. I think so. So he also took a carved idol he made. He set it up in God's temple. Now, again, we're going to moment. I'll talk to you what this, this idol was. He puts it right in the very spot God had promised to Solomon when he built it. If you honor me, I will honor you, your nation for, forever and ever. 
And so in this temple of God is this pagan, grotesque, perverse, twisted idol that he erects there. And then it says, verse 9, But Manasseh led the people of Judah and Israel to do even more evil than all the pagan nations the Lord had destroyed when the people of Israel entered the land. Did you catch that? He led the people away from God into perversion, into twisted everything. And so notice what it says here. So the Lord sent the commanders of the Assyrian armies. They took Manasseh prisoner. They put a ring through his nose, bound him in bronze chains, and took him away to Babylon. Stop. He got what he deserved. One other thing this passage does not say, 2 Kings chapter 20, it says not only did he do all these things, but he said he filled Jerusalem from the front to the end with innocent blood of people. He murdered his own people. He was an ancient Edi Amin, Paul Pot, Mao Zedong, Stalin, Hitler, all rolled into one. He was a, he was a, a Gaddafi. He was a Hussein. Murdering his own people. And amazingly, it says, um, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they ignored all his warnings. How many think, is this a nice guy? They say, well, what's this got to do with us today? I mean, after all, but before I get to that, I want to ask you this question. How does someone get this way? Let me fill you a little bit of his background. His father was Hezekiah, one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel, a godly man. And if you go back and, and uh, you'll see that when the nation was surrounded by 186,000 or 185,000 Syrian troops, uh, he prayed to God, God answered his prayer. He was a godly man, a wonderful king. But we also go on, if you go back to the book of Isaiah, you'll see that God told him to put his things in order. He was going to die. He says, but wait a minute, God. He said, you know what? It's kind of like I'm too young and would you reconsider? And so he prays to God and God says, okay. And the scripture says God added 15 years onto his life. Guess who was born in that 15-year period? Our bad boy. Manasseh, by the way, when you pray for something and you're passionate about it, be careful. You might get it. Be careful what you pray for. Is it a really a God-ordained kind of thing, or is it just something I want to have and I got to have it? So Manasseh is born during this time. And also, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 20, it gives the name of his mother. Her name was Hephzibah. And it means, my delight is in her. Now, I wouldn't uh, die for this, but I can tell you, I have some particular uh, ideas of, of what happened. And the idea that Hephzibah as a wife was favored by Hezekiah, the, 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 her husband and, and father of Manasseh. And because this boy died... When he was born three years after his dad got to 15 years, his dad, he was 12 when his father died. I believe, and everything in his life shows that he was greatly indulged. You know, sometimes the youngest child, anybody here the last born in a family and have older siblings? How many of you are older siblings, okay? And you had younger brothers and sisters. Who kind of got away with things? Who did? The younger. The younger, that's what's said with conviction. And how many of us as parents spoiled the younger ones? I mean, our older kids said, Dad, we never got that. You know, you did this, you did that. I know. Well, I believe there was great indulgence in his life. But you see, kids need more than delight. They need direction. And be a, if you look at his life, 
all about him spoke of, here was a kid born with a silver spoon in each finger. And we see that he abused privileges, he abused power, he abused people, and he had no one to check him. He's the king, what he said, and mom somehow helped indulging this. He couldn't have been this way. Had a professor in seminary said, in the lives of kings, have you ever thought why, why in the book of Kings, it mentions every king's mother? Go back and read it. It doesn't mention them in Chronicles. And he said, now, while you and I understand the complete importance of a father in a child's life, fathers did not raise the children in kings' homes. Kings were off doing other stuff. They didn't raise their own kids much. The mothers did. And so in these contexts, often that child was a result of the influence of a mother, not that a father didn't have some responsibility. He did. Be that as it may, this kid was indulged. He abused it. And the result was the entire nation suffered. This indulged, gone wild king, the ultimate horrible leader. Now, you say, okay, that's nice, but this is 2012, and um, what's that got to do with me? What's that got to do with anything? How many think we're like him? Now, most of you know I've been here before. This is a trick question. <laughs> I think we're very much like him. Every one of us here. You see, the problem with Manasseh was it said that God warned him but he and the people ignored God. Is there anybody in this room who does not ignore God on a regular basis in some area of our life? God's been speaking to you and me about thought life, about habits, about relationships, about how we treat people, about our lusts, about how we spend money, about on and on and on and on. And we just kind of blow right on by it. And what Manasseh is proof is if we love, we do it our own thing, listen to people around us because they're doing the same thing. We listen to that stuff. We ignore God long enough. Guess what? We're not that far away from being a Manasseh. It raises another question. How is 2012 going to be any different than 2011 for you and for me? Should it be? I mean, was 2011 such a banner year? Your life and mine was so wonderful, there's no area that we need to grow in or change or become more of who God wants us to be? Well, we know it does. But if we don't make some choices along the way to choose differently, we're going to merely repeat 2011. And it may not be banner. And so as we look at this life of Manasseh, who seems to be far away from where I am, anything I have to do, just remember, the key to his demise was he ignored the Lord. And God is speaking to us every day about many things in our life. And we can blow right on past and say, that doesn't apply to me. That's everybody else. I, I can ignore that one. We're not that far away. Years ago when I came to, um, over 20 years ago, um, by the way, just say it again, if we ignore God in any area of our life, we will experience major league trouble. It's just a matter of time. Came to Ventura over 20 years ago and brand new at the church there. And a woman came up to me and she said, when are you going to talk about sin? Now, I was a little, slightly a little less uh, gracious and tactful than hopefully I am now, over 20 years ago. And I just shot right back to her. I said, which ones? Christian sins or pagan sins? And she kind of looked at me like, because I know what she meant. She wanted me to preach about them awful things out there, you know, the smoking, drinking, and all those bad things, and premarital sex, and movies, and all that. And I said, why don't we start with Christian sins? I said, let's talk about gossip and critical spirit. 
and judgment of those who are doing things that we think about, but we don't do them, but they do them. Uh, stinginess, rather than being generous and sharing. Lack of understanding. Anger, failure to risk faith. Worshiping our own comfort zone. We won't step outside of our own comfort zone because we want to hold on to what we have. We won't get involved in the mess of the world. I said, now, which of those should we start with? She wasn't too excited about that. Another question. What would you do if you were God with Manasseh? He's now, he got what he deserved. He's in Assyria. He's in prison. He's in a jail. He's got a hook through his nose. You know what I'd do? I mean, I'd let the hammer fall. Let him rot there or worse. Anybody else share my sympathy? You don't have to raise your hand. I see a few nods. Yeah, I, he, he, he deserved his lunch. And that was an old expression from Hooserland. But, you know, um, the amazing thing is God takes a different approach. And before I get there, is God sending him off, getting what he deserved, is it an act of judgment or is it an act of grace? What do you think? The answer is yes. It's God's judgment because God cared and involved in the midst of this judgment is God's grace. How do we know that? Well, look at the verse 12. But while in deep distress, get this, Manasseh sought the Lord his God and sincerely humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed, the Lord listened to him and was moved by his request. The baddest boy in the Bible. So the Lord brought Manasseh, get this, back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. That means he made him king again. Then Manasseh finally realized that the Lord alone is God. And it didn't stop there because Manasseh not only turned to God, you wonder what was going through his mind as he's rotting away in that prison. All the things he'd rejected from his father as a godly king, he knew better. How else would he have known to turn to God? Isn't it funny? We may run from God our whole lives, but when we're in deep distress, we realize the same thing that he realized. You see, all his idols crumbled. All of our false securities, and he had them where? You know, he was a privileged kid. He had anything he wanted. He had possessions. He had power. He could do whatever he wanted. He had all the pleasure he wanted. He had people. He killed them if he wanted. And you know what? All of that collapsed in a moment because none of that's security, folks. I'll say it again. None of that is security. And because he was a man who had no checks and balances around him, he had no security. Can I say that again? If you can do anything you want, have everything you want, you lack any kind of security. Because security isn't being able to do whatever you want, having it all stashed away, thinking I'm fine. Security is found one place. And that's in a person. It's the only place that exists. We'll take a peek at that in just a moment. So he goes back to his own country, and it says the very things that he built, he destroyed them all. He threw them out of the city. And it says he went to the temple, he tore down, and I forgot to tell you, these idols. They were idols and altars to Baal or Baal and Ashtra. You know what, you know what those gods were? <laughs> they were the most perverted, twisted sexual practices, these gods. I, couldn't, I won't describe any of it. We, we would have to clear the place out. It's the very reason God destroyed the Canaanites, because they wouldn't turn to him. It was so perverse. It was so twisted. 
And this is what he is doing. And this, he's establishing this. And by the way, people say, oh, it doesn't matter. You can, anybody can do what they want, right? Is that what God says? I don't think so. So this is what he was doing, and he tore it out. And then it says, finally, he encouraged his people to return to the Lord as he had, the last years that he had. Now, I don't know about you, but the God who gives, by the way, they say there's no grace in the Old Testament. I don't think they've read the Bible, right? The God who gives that kind of a chance to murderers, perverse, twisted people, to those who worship the occult and Satan, it's a God bigger than any God I really understand. He's got to stretch my understanding of him. Rest of our time this morning, before we come to the Lord's table, we want to quickly take a look at some questions that I think are very pertinent and germane to our lives today. And the first one is this. What is favor grace? You've been here before, you know they're the same word. Favor and grace. It's the Greek word charis. It's used so many times to translate it favor, so many times grace. And here's the definition. It's the goodness and greatness of God's initiation. That is, it all comes from him. He starts it. And provision for every need we have. Say that again. It's God's initiation and provision of every need you will ever have. That's grace. It begins with our meeting God, our salvation, everything else, and then everything else he provides. And who does he give it to? To the undeserving, the unaware, unprepared, and unable. If you are found in those four words, would you please put your hand up? Again, every one of us, that's who you are in the eyes of God. We are undeserving, we are unaware, we're unprepared, and we're unable to handle the world, the universe, and our own lives apart from the gracious favor of Jesus Christ. Next question. Who or what is the source of all goodness? Now, I already know you know the answer to that, right? I mean, this is a church. We do read our Bible here. And remember, it's like the old Sunday school story. The little boy goes to Sunday school and the teacher says, what's, uh, you know, furry, got a, a furry tail, uh, climbs in trees, eats nuts, and, and the little boy shoots his hand up. He says, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> right? Well, you know the answer to the source of all of our goodness is who? God, yes. All of it. But the question isn't, do I know that? The question is, do I believe it enough to risk my whole life on it? Because the faith that God talks about isn't the faith we talk about in church. Oh, I believe that. It doesn't mean anything. Am I going to risk my life on it? That means I believe it. Will I risk my whole life on what God says? That's true faith. And on who God is. Notice this verse. Read this with me, would you? Please, from 1 Corinthians 4. What do you have that God hasn't given you. Let's read it with a little more conviction. Here we go. What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? Everything we have comes from God. And here's the problem. If we don't realize this, we will erect a, an idol that we'll trust in. If we don't believe God's the source of everything, we're going to try to bring it to ourselves. We'll erect idols of, just as he did, possessions and people and power and pleasure to meet our needs. We're going to try to bring those to ourselves. And that just kicks God out. That ignores him. 
Notice these other verses. From his abundance, and here he speaks of Jesus Christ. The passage before this in John 1 says, Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth. And from his abundance of what? Of favor grace. We have all received one gracious blessing after another. Every good thing in your life and in mine comes from who? Yeah, yeah. Everything. It only comes from one source. Let me ask you this question. Who pays your paycheck? Say, my boss, my company. Really? Yeah, they do. What's the source behind that? Question. Who opens doors of opportunities for you? But I've worked hard. I've gone in my profession. I do a good job. Who opens doors of opportunity for you? Third question. Where did you get your abilities? to make those good decisions, to have the skills that you have, to have good people relational skills, to think the way you do, to decide, where did that come from? Why is this country secure? Or is it? It's because we're so smart. That was a joke, folks. It's okay to laugh in church. Why are you breathing right now? How do you know that you'll be breathing tomorrow? Folks, everything we have comes from God. And only fools think they got it themselves. By the way, fools can be brilliant PhDs. A fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Another way of saying it, I don't need him in that area. I can handle it. That's a fool. James 1.17, just for God to remind us, whatever is good and perfect or complete comes down from our Father, our real Dad, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. All the source of every good thing in your life has been, always will be, from the hand of the true source, your real Dad. And if I have a view of God as something different than that, I've got the wrong dad. Second question. If life worked well, if everything was wonderful all the time, we wouldn't need this next question. But it's simply this. Who or what else can operate in darkness and bring light? What do I mean by that? Where do you draw your strength, your hope, your direction when you're overwhelmed with life? When things head south, when it's not going your way, when there's pain, when there's disaster, when there's tragedy, when there's heartbreak, where do you go? Does that ever happen in our lives? Yeah. You see, life guarantees all people will experience in their lifetime failure, loss, heartbreak, and eventually death. There are no exceptions. No one in this room ever has been or will be exempt from those. So where do we do? And also in these times of darkness where it seems so dark, and some of you have been there, that your access to God seems blocked. Where did he go? Why is it this way? How come I can't hear from him? Sometimes it feels like that. Some of God's greatest followers have gone through that kind of pain. Years ago, a friend of mine was a pastor in Portland. He passed away, but he wrote a book called, it was about, where does our hope come from? But he wrote a book entitled, God Works the Night Shift. book was better than the title, and that was a great title. In our darkness, you see, God has night vision. He doesn't sleep. He's not overwhelmed. He's not afraid. He doesn't say, oh, this is too big for me to handle. No, God works the night shift. 
and he cares. And there's a passage of scripture that is the foundation of all other promises. We've used it here before. You've used it before if you've walked with Christ. I'd like us to read it. It's from Romans 8.28. It's in your outline. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Look up here just for a moment. Tooth keys. Those who love God and are called and living according to his purposes. Those people can count on God bringing good out of bad. It's in the bank. It's not for everybody. You've ever heard someone say, oh, it'll all work out? Oh, yeah, it'll work out, but not, it will not be good unless God's involved. And for those who love him, this is an unconditional, conditional promise. God's going to do it. But he wants our love, and he wants us to live for his purposes. And that's what this is all about. It's the foundation for every other promise in all of the Bible. They all rest in this solid foundation. You know, the key to the height of a tree is what? It's roots, right? Now, redwoods are a little different because their roots go sideways and they're all interconnected. But most of them go deep. Anybody here ever watched a skyscraper being built? Or anything, any construction people in here? You know, when the Twin Towers went down, what people didn't realize is how much is underground. We're talking six, eight, ten stories down to build a skyscraper that tall. And your life and my life is all built upon how we handle pain is built on our foundation. And if my source of security is anything other than the source, there's going to be trouble right here in River City. But if it is him, Jesus said that a house built upon the rock, meaning him and his words, will withstand any storm. The storms came and it stood because you've built your life on the source that counts. Not people's opinion, not popular opinion, not what they say on TV, but what Jesus says. There's a rock there. A promise is only as good as its foundation. And when you have time, go back and read Romans 8, 29. It says that he has done everything for you, those whom he foreknew, and he called, and he predestined. is the verse that comes right after this one. It tells us what our foundation is. Everything that you needed in Christ, he's given. In a moment, we're going to see why that is absolutely so crucial. It also means that all other substitutes are artificial and they will eventually fail. You see, the substitutes in our life that the world runs to, the power, the possessions, the privileges, the pleasures, and all those things, will produce anxiety, confusion, fear, and uncertainty, and a lot of other things. That's how you know what you're resting on. Because when the storms come, that's what happens when we're resting in on false security. You see, there's a lot of straw houses, worthless diversions. Look at our society. We're, we're totally absorbed in things that don't matter. Reality TV. I'm sorry, I'm sure occasionally it's fun and it's worthless, folks. How about the, the, the painkillers of our society that are those kinds of things? The trivial pursuits. And, you know, and, and we've got these, we think that our investments are secure. According to who? We have cardboard fortifications and strategies. We deadbolt our houses at night, and I do it too. And we have alarm systems, and we think we're secure, and we have a, a, a defense and a military, and we think that's security. It all is tinsel when it comes to real life. See, there are thousands and thousands of substitutes for the true source. 
So the question is, where do we turn when they fail? Because they're all going to fail eventually. In my own life, I thought back as I was going through this message that in my own life, what helped me? <laughs> you know, growing up really with an absence of a father caused me to turn to God. And my whole life has been a search for the real God. I remember starting a church with six people. <laughs> well, that'll humble you. Crying out to God, then going on a search that's taken me four decades to get answers. God, what's this whole thing about? And, and uh, it's been a great ride. I went through a seven-year depression. There I learned to praise God, claim promises, promises, and fight spiritually. God did wonderful things in a lousy depression. And then there was a year the church split, and my, my wife died in the same year. It forced me to focus back on the source and just recently, our family is going through an uh, experience that, frankly, folks, is the toughest mountain I've had to climb. And if, when, I, when I'm able to, we'll tell you more, but we just appreciate you praying for us. But you see, there is no other source of strength or security. Everything else is a substitute. It's worthless in your time of need. Somebody said that those who really live by Romans 8.28 from problems such from measles to the mortuary. <laughs> they said they are the freest, the strongest, and the most generous people on this earth because they're living in what God says. He will take the pain, the agony, the loss, the death, and from that, he can bring life and good. No human can do that. How about our weaknesses? Well, you can read the next verse. It says, each time Paul was to, God, take this thorn out of my flesh. He said, each time... My grace, my favor, same word interchangeably, is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. Really? <laughs> and in insults and hardships, persecution and troubles that I suffer for Christ for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's very un-American because we cover our weaknesses. Don't anybody see them? And he says, hey, I give them to God openly because now I'm discovering his power. And one of the things God's taught me to do is to praise him in my weaknesses. God, I am so weak and pathetic in this area. And you're so strong. <laughs> you can handle anything that I can't and never thought of. And you live in me. You live in this weak body. Uh, at Christmas time, Barbara Liljegren gave uh, Patricia, uh, my wife, a, a book. And it was entitled Blossom in the Desert. And like any good husband, my wife gets a new book. I read it. I mean, isn't hers mine and, and mine mine? And I mean, however that works. And so she's always saying, where'd my books go? I said, well, honey, it was sitting right there. It wasn't doing anything. I mean, when I watched the book, it was just sitting right there. So I picked it up. And uh, it was an amazing story because it, it was a guy book because it was full of pictures. <laughs> Man, do I hear any? Yeah, that's a guy thing. By the way, speaking of guys, we started Men's Summit again on Friday morning. Guys, we're off to a great start. And if you weren't part of it last semester, I invite you to come. You have no competition at 6 in the morning. <laughs> but we're also taking a book from Real Life Ministries. We visited it back in the spring. It's a church of 9,000 people, 9,200 people, started uh, about 12, 13 years ago. And they have 8,000 in small groups in a town of 27,000, and they're just leading them to Jesus. It's an incredible book, 
But it's a great challenge for men who want more out of their life than just going to work and coming back and trying to raise a family. So guys, you want a challenge, you want something, and have a ball with guys, I invite you to come. Where was I? Oh, yeah, the book. The book and the pictures. Yeah, pictures. Really great pictures. And let me tell you who she was. Um, when she was in her 20s, she was born in 1853, so this would have been the 1870s, she met the famous art critic and artist, one of uh, England's most famous, John Ruskin. And uh, her mother brought along some of her pictures, showed it to him. And he said, this is an amazing talent. In fact, as time went on, he began to say, you know, she could be one of the two or three greatest artists in the history of England. And so he invited her to study with him. And he said, but after a while, he said to her, you know, in order for this to work, you're going to have to devote yourself entirely to your art. So she went away and had some time to think and actually struggle over that. And here's why. As a young woman in her 20s, she already had a ministry in the heart of London with prostitutes, reaching these dear women, bringing them love and care that they'd never received, leading them to Jesus. She even started the first restaurant in London's history for women. Because where are they going to eat? Who's going to care for them? She already had this thing going. And so she went back, and after she struggled and she agonized, she went back to him and said, I cannot do this. Because she had another call on her heart that was more important than becoming one of the greatest artists in the history of England. And one of the greatest celebrities, because that was celebrity at the time in those days. And so years later, when she was 35, God had been working in her life. She remained friends with Ruskin, and he saw her paintings and... Back in his museum, he's got all of her paintings in a drawer. He didn't display them with the other two or three great artists of England, but they're all there. And uh, so at 35, she had heard about the plight of people around the world. She accepted a mission call to go to northern Africa, and she spent the rest of her life there ministering to Arabs, Muslims in northern Africa, Algiers. And over a period of years, she established 13 mission outposts, or maybe it was 19. I can't remember the numbers right now. But she did something else. While she was there, she wrote 39 devotionals, and she illustrated most of them because she kept her art going, these incredible things. And this blossom in the desert that Barbara gave to us is a, is a devotional of some of those paintings. It's fascinating. The amazing thing about her is she chose Christ as her security and not what London had to offer. Well, who ever heard about her because she died in oblivion. About 20 years plus ago, two women from England were visiting Winter Park, Florida, which is a suburb of Orlando. And they went to this church. They met the pastor's wife. And they began, somehow they brought up this woman because she had been a relative of theirs. And then they sent her one of her drawings for Christmas. And for the next seven years after that, they sent her one of Lilius Trotter's um, paintings for Christmas. And they, she began to ask, who is this woman? And then she discovered and found out where she had written these devotionals. And make a long story short, someone said, someone needs to write a biography of this woman's life. So this pastor's wife goes to England and spends months studying all of her drawings, talking to people, and writes a book. And uh, the, the name of the book, of her biography, and I have it right here, is called A Passion for the Impossible, The Life of Lilius Trotter. And so I'm picking this up. I look at the pretty pictures, and I flip back to the index. And uh, isn't it interesting how now, well over 70 years since she's been dead, nobody had ever heard of her. God's bringing her name back. People are reading the book by the thousands. And I open the front of the book, and here's what she wrote. 
Take the very hardest thing in your life, the place of difficulty, outward or inward, and expect God to triumph gloriously in that very spot. Just there, he can bring your soul into blossom. You hear that? Take the most difficult place of your life, inward or outward. Expect God to triumph gloriously in that spot. Don't hide him from it. Invite him in. Just there, he can bring your soul into blossom. See, that's our God, folks. We want to hide those things. He wants in. That's where you'll discover real life. Then she wrote this. Measure your life by loss and not by gain. Not by the wine drunk, but by the wine poured out. For love's strength stands in love's sacrifice. And he who suffers most has most to give. She also went to this, she continued her friendship with Ruskin, as well as her art, but she said now it was with a grand independence of soul, which she later described as the liberty of those who have nothing to lose. Listen to this. The freedom of people who have nothing to lose because they have nothing to keep. She gave it all up. She gave up her life. She was totally free. And then she says this, we can do without anything while we have God. See, our God's ways are not our ways. He doesn't think like we do. And freedom comes from a different place. Next verse says this. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and find grace to help us when we need it the most. How often do we need to do that? In 2012, how often will you need to come before the throne of grace? If you're wise, just every day. Just every day. We're foolish if we think we can handle 2012 just because we handled some things in 2011. Yeah. We're invited, not into the courtroom, but the throne room of the king who made it all. Our maker, our redeemer, our sustainer. Third question. What can we anticipate in the future? How much of your future is uncertain? Just all of it. Right? So what can you anticipate? What if life doesn't turn out the way you'd hoped it did in 2012 or beyond? What if things are going south? What now? Well, will there be favor grace in our future? Can you bank on that? Did you know that's the key to your whole life? Did you know that? The key to your entire life is will you count on favor grace in your future? How do you know it'll be there? We've already looked at the foundation in Romans 8.20. How about Romans 8.32? Look at what it says. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Did you see that? What's God saying? I gave you the most when I gave you my son. God gave you his greatest gift. The most difficult thing God ever gave was to let his son come and be crucified on this earth so you and I could have eternal life. That's the biggest. That's the most difficult. And he says, if I can handle that, everything else is a piece of cake. What's the everything else that would make us happy? You know, new house, bigger job, trophy wife. I mean, what do we leave out? 
He says, that's a piece of cake. He might give you that. But what if he doesn't? He said, it doesn't matter. Because he's already given us his son. Nothing's greater. Our problem is, it's hard for us to see that. And the all things that he's talking about goes back to the verse before it. He said, if God's for us, who can be against us? After first service, someone came up and said, you know what? But what does that mean? Does that mean we'll never be killed, tortured, or persecuted? No. We can be killed. So what's he mean then? <laughs> Nothing can ever touch our spirit and our soul in Jesus. They can take everything from us. In fact, we lose everything one day. But nobody can touch us there. It says, also means this. Nothing will ever enter your experience as God's child that by his sovereign grace will not turn out to be a benefit to you. That's what that means. Whatever comes into your life as father filtered, if it's good, bad, ugly, or disastrous, or tragedy, in the hands of God, it will benefit us. Nobody else can say that. There's a lot of bad in the world, folks, a lot of pain. Let's not kid ourselves. And there's tons of it here in America as well. But God will equip and strengthen us to do his will, even amidst great opposition. Now, he can give you every other benefit as well, but if he doesn't, He's still giving you everything. He's given you himself. Look at the next verse. I love this one. Isaiah 46, 4. Some of you know why I like this one. I will be, every time I look in the mirror, I like this one. I will be your God throughout your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I'm working on it. Trying to get this. I made you. I will care for you. I will carry you along and save you. You see, the question is, do I count on that? God's carried us this far. How will he do? And why is this crucial? Why is this so crucial to count on future grace? Here's why. Because you and I will give in to substitutes if we don't believe that. All sin is simply this. Do things yourself. Don't wait for God, what he says about marriage and sex. Don't wait for God about money. Don't wait. Just do it yourself. Why wait for God? That's the oldest temptation on earth, folks. If I don't believe that God's goodness is in the future, I'll give in to that. Secondly, I... And by the way, God will test us. He always tests us through waiting. He doesn't do things right away. Why? To see if we're going to trust him. That's why he waits. I won't be generous if I don't believe in God's future grace. I'm just going to hold on for me. I'm going to be stingy. And you know what? I won't take any risks of faith. I'll just make sure I'm secure. I got my little, I'm, I'm not doing any of that faith stuff. Unless I believe there's future grace. And no matter how much of my life I give up, God's got more to give me back. Look at the next verse. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. We think of guidance as this takes me to the right job, the right place. It's more than that. What God says is there is that he will guide you to the greatest impact for his kingdom. That means he's going to work in your values, your thoughts, your priorities, your convictions, your perspective to make you think like him. That's guidance. And then he can put you to the place. And he'll, he'll also trade the trade, uh, Change the way we treat people. And he will open our eyes to see opportunities for his kingdom that we've walked right on past before. It also means he'll lead this church to the right pastor. Keep praying. Number four question. What activates favor grace in our life? It's there. God says, I have a whole storehouse in your future of my goodness and my grace. So how, how come some people experience it and some people don't? Write down the verse, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Forgot to put it in there, sorry. It says, for by grace or favor, you have been saved by faith, through faith. And that, not of yourselves, what's the that? 
faith isn't even your own. It's a gift from God. Otherwise, we would say, look at me and look how good I am. The very faith you have comes from God. That's what activates it because people who trust God that there will be future grace in their future please Him and honor Him. In fact, the more I trust God and the bigger I claim it, the more I please Him, believe it or not. God likes people to say, God, I want you to do great things in the future for you and your kingdom and let me be part of it. That pleases God. He says, draw on my bank account. That's what pleases Him. And by the way, the more you use faith, guess what God does? He gives you more. <laughs> You'll be able to trust Him for bigger things and more things. But He says, who will take a risk of faith to step out and believe what I said and do something about it? Now, let me tell you how I'm praying for ABF for this year. God, give us the faith that takes risks of faith. And then I'm also praying if we don't, God will push us out of our comfort zone. How many think that's a great prayer? Huh? That's what I'm praying. You and me both. If we won't take steps of faith, God will push us so we have to. And he loves us so much, he will do that. I mean, you know, one of the end of the year we raised, there was 20 plus thousand dollars for missionaries. Why don't we start thinking out? What does God want to do in 2012? Why not double that? What about how many people we reach for Christ? Why not double or triple that one? Let's ask God for more. Watch what he does. And then um, the next verse here, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. By the way, humility is faith. I'm not trusting me anymore. I'm trusting God. He'll do more than I ever could. That's the idea of humility. And then finally, but we who live by the Spirit eagerly await, await to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised us. You don't have enough faith in yourself to believe God for what He wants to do. That's why you have the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not it. He's a person. He lives within us when we give our lives to Jesus. He will prompt you. Trust me. Remember that promise. That's how you and I are going to do it because God has given us the power within the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Grace. And then the final question on the very back is this. What is the goal of favor grace? Well, you probably guessed at this. Romans 8.29 says, For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son. God's goal for your life and mine is to make us like Jesus from the inside out. That we live for Him and His kingdom instead of our own plans. That we trust our Heavenly Father's goodness. That we're counting on future grace. No matter how lousy tomorrow goes, there's going to be grace in your future. Don't look for circumstances to prove it. Look for God to show up in miraculous ways in the middle of a mess or a great day. That's what that's about. He didn't run out of it. He's an ocean of grace. And he says, trust me for that. In fact, he says, the very gifts and abilities I've given you, each of you, God's given each of you a gift from his variety of spiritual gifts. Why? Use them well to serve one another. Your abilities, your giftedness, your skills, your unique personality isn't for you. It's not so you can become famous, you know, make American Idol. It's so you can bless the people around you. Now, you might make American Idol, but why? It's for him. That's why. And then the final verse, I love this one. All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people. Did you see that? There will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. What's going to reach more and more people, according to that verse? Look at it, please. What is it? The favor and grace of God. That's what we want to promote to people. I shared with Men's Summit the other day. You know what? Most people, 
Surveys even show, did you know that the average non-Christian expects you to talk to them about your faith? That's what all studies show. They, they want to know why you won't. Did you know that? And the other thing is, did you know that 9 out of 10 people would receive Jesus right now if they knew who he was? They think he's church, he's those bad attitude Christians here or there, all those goofy things they've seen in the movie. And your role in mine is to remove that baloney and let them see Jesus for who he is. Who wouldn't want him? There's no grace like that in the universe. So who are you planning to bless with grace by loving them, praying for them, so they can know Jesus? Who? And who in your life is a difficult person, I'm not talking about abuser, but that you need to show grace to? Because it wasn't meant to hoard, it was meant to be spread. Because our God has poured it on us. Let's bow together as we take the Lord's table. Actually, just to bow your head for a moment and ask our uh, servers to come forward right now and begin passing out the, uh, the elements. So, brothers, please come forward while I'm talking. Let me ask you some questions with your head bowed. If I were to say this morning, if you're honest with God, what is the source of your security or your success or your pleasure? And folks, we all have to admit there's a battle that we put substitutes in the place of Jesus. And like Manasseh, God could have destroyed him. But instead, he reached out to him, rotting in that prison, touched his heart, so that, go ahead and begin to pass it out, brothers. Please take it and hold it as it comes and keep your head bowed for a moment and we'll all partake together. But he didn't. He reached out to Manasseh who'd been running from him in rebellion his whole life, and he said, come to me. Maybe this morning there's someone here you know that you've been running from God. You've been living according to your own plans, marching to your own drumbeat. But this morning, in your heart, you know you want much more than that. Because if it would have satisfied you to do your own thing, you'd already be satisfied. But you aren't, because that won't, and it never can. There's one who draws you right now. Are you willing to say yes to him? How much does he love you? He died for you and your sin and your failure. No one else in your life has done that or will do that for you. No one else can. Because there's no other sinless, perfect one than Christ. So this morning, if you're not sure he lives in your heart, open the door to your heart and say, Jesus, I want you to come in to my life. Please keep your heads bowed. Just talk to God that way. In fact, if that expresses the desire of your heart this morning, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, please, just slip your hand up and say, I want you to pray for me, Roland, because that's the choice I want to make. Thank you. Thank you. Father, you see the hands and hearts of your people. And thank you that you honor your, their request as they've opened their lives to Christ. Praise God and welcome to his family. For others, you know that he lives in you, but you also know that you have substitutes for his security and his satisfaction. And today you want to say, God, forgive me for relying upon people, pleasures, positions instead of you. And today I want to make you 
the true source of my life. For others today that may say, you know, I look at my life, there's pain, there's failure, there's tragedy, or there's just struggles. And I really want God to bring out of my life the beauty that only He can. And I want you to pray for me. That expresses the desire of your heart. Just, just slip your hand up. I'll pray for you. Thank you. Father, again, you know. Thank you that we are not here to play church or religious games. But this time is as we meet with the one true living God who gave his life for us. Finally, Father, we want to be used by you to make a difference in a world that's heading south in a hurry. And today, if you're willing to say, God, I want you to use my life. I want to receive your grace and your favor so it will spill out into the lives of others around me. Are you willing to tell God that? He will honor it. On the night Jesus was betrayed, Scripture says he took bread at the Passover meal, knowing he was the Passover lamb who was about to be sacrificed less than 24 hours. He took the bread and he broke it and he said to his followers, he said, this is my body. It's about to be broken for you. And he knew that his father had sent him to experience torture, pain and suffering on a cross to pay for the sin of the world because that's how severe it is. The sin of selfishness, the sin of ignoring God, the sin of resentment, whatever it may be, he came to pay for it. And he said, this is my body. It's been broken for you. It was about to be crushed to give you and me life. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. He said, in the same way that night, he took a cup. He said, this is the cup of my new covenant, my blood, which was spilled for you. And every time, he said, do this often in memory of me. And when you and I feel our lives being pulled apart from God, we're starting to go our own way, it's a reminder that we're invited back to the throne of grace and favor. No one else can give that to us. It's a reminder that if we choose him, he will return to us. It's a reminder that every day I need the full impact of what he did on that cross. And to know also that he will pour that grace into my life so I can pour it into others. Jesus said, this is the cup of my new covenant, my blood which was shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Father, thank you for the favor grace of your son that makes us new. Use our lives, bless your people this week, and may that favor and grace pour out of our lives into people all around us. Bless as we go, I ask in Christ's name and all God's family said. God bless you. Turn and greet somebody on the way out. Have a wonderful day.